In my experience, reading the Bible prayerfully and carefully is essential to our spiritual growth. Reading prayerfully means, at the very least, reading with mind and heart, desiring to grow in our understanding and appreciation for God's self-revelation in Scripture. Reading carefully means we bring to our reading whatever we have learned that helps us understand what the human authors of Scripture were trying to say. God certainly attempts to speak to us personally and as a church through the Bible. But what God's living word, what God seeks to tell us today through Scripture, will have its roots deeply embedded in the original context of the Scriptures we read. Prayerfully reading sacred Scripture takes on a profound meaning when we are speaking specifically of the Psalms. The Psalms are prayers. They are the original hymn book of God's people, and many of our Christian hymns are drawn directly from the Psalms, even if they are creatively paraphrased. When the Psalms themselves are used by modern Christians, we have to keep our wits about us. There's much that is shocking in the Psalms. Frequently, there are prayers requesting divine vengeance on one's enemies. How are we to appreciate those passages as divinely inspired prayer? Many biblical scholars, including our own commentary writer, Steve Binns, draw on the insights of one of America's greatest Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, who looks deeply into the timeless and most basic spiritual needs arising from human experience. His writings also show up as a framework in a commentary by John Cragen that we use for our own Little Rock scripture studies of the Psalms, Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. According to Brueggemann, Cragen, and Binns, the Psalms shed light on our human condition by revealing that there are just three basic stances from which we humans pray to our Creator. Brueggemann calls these stances orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. When things are going well in life, when our basic spiritual and physical needs are being met and we are not fretting over the future, we can be said to be in a state of orientation. We turn to God because we are assured of our Creator's love for us. We live in assurance that we are cared for. We find this motivation for praise of God in many psalms, but perhaps the call to enter this spiritual orientation was best expressed by Jesus in this address to his disciples. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Prayer in a state of orientation, springing from deep appreciation for God's presence with his people, is illustrated in Psalm 104. You make the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people's work to bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden their hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain the human heart. For me, the supreme moments of my life, when I was sure all was right in the world and God's favor glowed most warmly in my heart, were those precious moments when I first held my children in my arms, and then experiencing those moments anew as I embraced my two granddaughters. And I can't wait to hold my first grandson, who's due before this video will be released. But there is another flavor to Psalms of Orientation, 
the awe and wonder that we experience when we acknowledge the magnificence of God revealed in the splendor of creation. In Israel's ancient temple, worshipers of the Lord would sing out their praises and they heard thunderstorms roll overhead. Having experienced the awesomeness of many thunderstorms in Arkansas, I know exactly how they felt. Give to the Lord, you sons of God, give to the Lord glory and might. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bow down before the Lord's holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is power. The voice of the Lord is splendor. And in Psalm 19, verse 2, we find the timeless recognition of God's glory being proclaimed by all the stars of the cosmos. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hands. If all life long we lived in a state of orientation, we might always count our lives blessed. But how could we relate with compassion toward those good people who suffer all sorts of losses and ills? The question is moot though, isn't it? Who, having lived long enough, has altogether escaped any time of deep sorrow or soul-numbing loss? Such times are prayerfully expressed in psalms of disorientation. In many strains of Christian spirituality, we are taught to admire a stoic resistance to admitting the deep pain of one's losses. My grandmother became a widow only a few months after I was born. Years later, I asked my mother how it affected my grandmother. I remember mother telling me in a tone clearly marked by praise for her mother that she took it like a brick. Biting the bullet is how many of us were raised to respond to pain and suffering. The Psalms, however, give free rein to emotions in times of illness or loss. There's one in particular that Christians are very familiar with. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from my call for help, from my cries of anguish? My God, I call by day, but you do not answer by night, but I have no relief. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the glory of Israel. We are familiar with the opening of Psalm 22 because it became our Lord's cry of agony from the cross. We need to remember, however, that the psalm was enshrined in Israel's prayer life because its pain, its sense of rejection by God, was a prayer that often fit the tragic circumstances of God's people. Jesus knew to pray it from the cross because the Jewish people had so often uttered its cries. We might even want to consider that Jesus wasn't just praying for himself, but also giving voice to all who find themselves seemingly rejected by God and man, left to die a painful and unjust death. What disturbs modern readers of the Psalms the most, however, are the unabashed cries for vengeance. You know my reproach, my shame, my disgrace, before you stand all my foes. May their own table be a snare for them, and their communion offerings a trap. Make their eyes so dim they cannot see. Keep their backs ever feeble. Pour out your wrath upon them. Let the fury of your anger overtake them. Let them gain from you no vindication. May they be blotted from the book of life, not registered among the just. I sincerely hope none of us ever find ourselves praying in this manner. 
but we have to acknowledge that people who are truly victims to grave injustice understandably hope for justice, and that is what these prayers are seeking. They are asking God to requite their enemies. They are not seeking to secure their own vengeance. St. Paul draws on the Old Testament to urge Christians to take a different approach to their enemies. Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Paul writes in light of the resurrection of Christ. The day when Christ returns will right all wrongs ever committed. In the time of the Psalms, when people cried out to God for vengeance against their enemies, there was no expectation that God would right wrongs after one entered the grave. If God was to reveal justice, it was in the lifetime of the faithful ones that it would have to be revealed. My life hasn't always enjoyed orientation. I could talk about a number of things. Having told you that the greatest moments in my life have been the birth of my children and grandchildren, I'll risk telling you the following. The greatest tragedy of my life is one shared with my wife when our first child entered the world stillborn after a full-term pregnancy. It is a loss that we will carry with us for the rest of our lives. No joy can erase the loss, and yet the loss only amplifies our joy in our children and grandchildren. Life is like that. Sorrow makes joy even more precious. Rebounding from sorrow, coming back to a clear sense of being oriented in life, is what is meant by reorientation. There is a very special psalm reflecting the joy of reorientation that is particularly dear to me. Before I was married, during my last years of high school and first year in college, I grew increasingly depressed to the point where I feared I would end up killing myself to put an end to the darkness. I'm not sure what prevented me, but I know that at the time things seemed the darkest. I was also afraid that dying would mean being swallowed by that darkness. There could be no escape from it. That's when a friend of mine suggested I start praying. He urged me to invite Christ into my life. I was desperate enough to follow up on his suggestion, and it was only days later I rejoiced to discover the reorientation proclaimed at the beginning of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I've had bad days since, to be certain, and as I said, my wife and I have dealt with personal tragedy. But my life has been blessed. I live with an undying sense of gratitude. And in mentioning gratitude, Cragen, the scholar of the Psalms, also teaches us that in biblical times, gratitude was not just a feeling dwelling in a thankful heart. The Psalms reveal that gratitude, thanksgiving, is always expressed outwardly. Are we grateful to God? Then we must tell the world. That is why we find in the same psalm this expression of gratitude. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. 
I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Therefore, I am using this moment to tell all who will listen that it is to you who are part of the great congregation, the Lord has done great things for me. Let's turn now from the Psalms to another category of biblical books, the wisdom writings. The wisdom tradition in ancient Israel developed over time in order to hand on to each succeeding generation a light onto the path leading to a good and fruitful life, one filled with happiness. Within the wisdom books of the Old Testament, we also discover what that elusive concept of happiness consists of. To be happy, one must have health, respect, the right spouse, uh, that is a good wife, we are dealing with a patriarchal society, offspring, especially male offspring, sufficient wealth, avoidance of calamity or misfortune. The wisdom tradition developed over time. The sages of Israel were not afraid to critique the wisdom they inherited. Initially, the wisdom tradition passed on the assurance that health, respect, wealth, and freedom from misfortune, and so on, would be providentially provided. It would be assured by God if one lived according to the foundations of wisdom teaching. That foundation is one we hear over and over again in Scripture. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fearing God meant keeping God's commandments, living in such a way that demonstrated you respected the reality of God's vigilant awareness of and authority over all human affairs. Those who kept to the path of wisdom could trust that they would be rewarded with the, the essential ingredients of happiness. One of the most poetic and succinct encapsulations of the wisdom tradition is actually found not in a book of wisdom per se, but in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in company with scoffers, Rather, the law of the Lord is his joy, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted near streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaves never wither. Whatever he does prospers. But not so are the wicked, not so. They are like chaff driven by the wind. Therefore, the wicked will not arise at the judgment, nor will sinners in the assembly of the just because the Lord knows the way of the just, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This confidence that the just are rewarded in life, but the wicked are punished, is shown to be true enough in a society that honors and rewards the just. As a religious belief, it came to be known as the doctrine of divine retribution. We usually think of retribution as something negative, but in the wisdom tradition, it usually came with a positive emphasis. If you live according to wisdom, if you fear the Lord, you will prosper, you will be happy. We find this precept of wisdom emphasized in the book of Proverbs and Sirach, and with a significant twist in the book of wisdom. It is seriously critiqued, however, in the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. Job was a righteous man, and yet he suffered horribly. Koheleth, the narrator of Ecclesiastes, was certain that there was a God, but found it impossible to discern any difference in the way God treated the just and the unjust. 
Well, it was true that wise people have eyes in their heads, but fools walk in darkness. Koheleth was also convinced that the same lot would befall them both. Both would die, and death puts an end to everything. The wise person will have no more abiding remembrance than the fool, for in days to come both will have been forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies like the fool? The insight that early wisdom teachers lacked was that God will reward the just, but not necessarily in this life. Only the latest wisdom work in the Old Testament, the Book of Wisdom, teaches that God blesses the just with eternal life. The Book of Wisdom is a deuterocanonical book. That is, it was found only in the Greek version of the Old Testament, written long after the last book written in Hebrew began to be revered as part of the Bible. Protestants, for the most part, do not recognize the Book of Wisdom as part of the Bible. But what the Book of Wisdom says concerning the mistaken belief that the just and the wicked ultimately become equals in death is a crowning insight of the wisdom tradition. The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. They seemed in the view of the foolish to be dead, and their passing away was thought an affliction, and their going forth from us utter destruction. But they are in peace. For if to others indeed they seem punished, yet is their hope full of immortality. Chastised a little, they shall be greatly blessed, because God tried them and found them worthy of himself. Both the Psalms and wisdom literature ponder our human experience as creatures of a wise, just, yet merciful God. They, like our own experience perhaps, also leave us with many questions unanswered. The Psalms teach us to pray in hopeful trust despite our questions. Wisdom teaches us to acknowledge our ignorance while trusting in God's wisdom. This leads me to close with the words of Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty. I do not busy myself with great matters, with things too sublime for me. Rather, I have stilled my soul, like a weaned child to its mother. Weaned is my soul. Israel, hope in the Lord, now and forever.